Welcome back to The Function Room with me, Colm O'Regan. This week, I'm telling you, it's all in your head. My guest is Rob Eastaway, author of many books which make maths more interesting and accessible. He also has a podcast called Puzzling Maths with Andrew Jeffrey, which you should check out if by some miracle you're not getting all your maths vitamins from here. His most recent book is called Maths on the Back of an Envelope, and it's about the surprising power of mental arithmetic. Along the way, we'll find out how to tell the height of a tree using the remains of a savoury snack, estimating crowds, dividing restaurant bills, counting weddings, just getting a rough idea of what's going on using Rob's favourite word. I'm a big fan of a word that we all use, but it isn't really out there in formal education, which is the word ish, I-S-H. And hopefully, generally giving us all a bit of confidence to get the answer wrong, but close enough. At the very end, Ruby takes his advice on board and just starts adding stuff up out of the blue. Well, not out of the blue, off the milk carton. Here's Rob Eastaway. Also, if you do hear some mysterious voices in the background, that's not on your side. It's not somebody trying to contact you from the ever after. I think we might have had visitors that day. Sorry about that. Anyway, here's Rob. Uh, I'm Rob Eastaway. I write books about maths and I speak about maths to any audience who's prepared to listen to me, be that uh, children, adults, parents, grandparents, um, uh, and even the stroppiest of teenagers. And you've been doing this for quite some time, uh, but to my shame, I didn't uh, know of your books until I got one of your more recent books as uh, a gift for Christmas by a very perceptive buyer. It's uh, maths on the back of an envelope. And it's about roughly calculating anything to quote cover. And it's about mental arithmetic. Is mental arithmetic something that you had been considering for a while and obviously use all the time? And you just come to realization, actually, it would be handy to distill all I know into one into one area. Yes, I would say that's pretty much it. Um, The strange thing is when most adults think about maths, they and talk about it, they're generally talking about arithmetic, whereas the maths that's studied at school beyond the age of 12 or 13 is often very little to do with arithmetic. It's other stuff. So it's curious how maths has these different meanings. And actually, in education terms, arithmetic kind of drops away as you're allowed to use calculators from whatever age, 14, 15. Um, so just as people leave school, they can't do arithmetic pretty much. Um, and I've come to realise it's a, it's become a bit of the poor relation of maths and it's really important and it might seem unglamorous and yet it's the math that most of us use that kind of thinking you know is so important in adult life so really I wanted to put arithmetic back on the table and say it's really important it's really cool and you don't need a calculator for lots of things but being able to roughly work things out is just a really useful skill. Would an analogy be that we it's like we've forgotten how to walk because we can get motorized transport everywhere? Yeah, lots. I mean, lots of analogies like that. When the technology is there, it's we get lazy and we we lose, you know, some of the skills that are so uh, valuable because we don't necessarily need them quite as often. And of course, you know, if you want to work out, you know, 736 times 27. I mean, back in the day, it used to take an age, even skilled people to do that on a, a piece of paper. Of course, you'd use a calculator for that. But the trouble is, we start using a calculator for 
absolutely everything. And suddenly we become dependent on calculators when we actually need to be able to challenge whether what they're telling us is right or not. We'll come to uh, mental blocks in a while, but just to kind of go to almost first principles, when faced with a sum and numbers, when the human brain is faced with a sum, a piece of arithmetic, what is going on? Are we visualizing numbers or is our instinct more correct and somehow how we did it in school then kind of tramples over what we might want to do when faced with calculations? Ha. I, it's so much must depend on the person. And so I don't know what's going on in other people's heads <laughs> other than in many people's heads, probably panic. Um, <laughs> that sense, especially if anyone else is involved. I mean, if, if it's just you versus calculation, you can relax a bit. But if anyone else is involved, is watching, then panic perhaps overrides everything else. And this fear of I'm going to get it wrong. How do you do it? I can't remember. It's better for me to say I can't do it than to attempt and get it wrong. So lots of those things are are there at the front. But then, um, well, there is this clash between uh, trying to remember those techniques you learned at school. If you're adding up saying, oh, what you're supposed to do is carry one and cross out this number and stuff. But compare that also with, with or people are also thinking, well, uh, I've kind of figured out ways to do it, which are like shortcuts and cheats. And they're not the way I was taught at school, but that's the way I'd like to use it. But many adults actually feel guilty about saying, you know, if I'm adding nine, I could add 10 and take away one uh, because I wasn't taught to do that at school. Uh, and I'm, 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 someone's going to tell me off. Whereas, in fact, the methods that we develop as we get older are exactly what we should be using. And so it's a bit of a shame that we've been almost drilled, those of us at a certain age anyway, were drilled to think this is the way you do it when there's lots of different ways you could do it. You mentioned there the fear of getting it wrong. And what I loved about reading Matt's on the back of an envelope is wrong is fine. <laughs> it's really just degrees of wrongitude. And I actually, I, I really did... I feel like I've been doing, you know, you're driving along the road and I was, I grew up at miles per gallon and I'm staring at uh, litres per hundred kilometres and I'm trying to, trying to figure out how, how the car is doing and my brain just won't accept litres and kilometres and I want to know, is it good miles per gallon? So I'm driving along while paying due care and attention, of course, to the road, trying to figure out how it translates into, am I getting the 40 or not? So I'm, I'm there, but at the same time, there was a sense in uh, looking, it was taking the gamble. Like I feel now I can take a gamble on working something out uh, because all I need to ensure is roughly maybe I have the right number of digits. And is that is that a part of it? Like just, is it about freeing your mind? <laughs> I think to a large extent, I mean, I think there are some basics that it's just really valuable to know. So, you know, good old traditional times tables up to 10 are just really useful because, you know, in the end, five times four is 20. Um, and it's good to know that. And uh, But the thing is, you don't necessarily, in most cases, need to know that 5.2 times 3.8 is whatever it is. It's about five times four. And I know five times four is 20. So I'm a big fan of a word that we all use, but it isn't really out there in formal education, which is the word ish, I-S-H. 
I just think it's a fantastic word to introduce in calculating because what we need to do when we're working out most things in life is what the answer is going to be ish. And uh, that's the liberating thing. So suddenly something really difficult like uh, 21 times 7.9. Wow, what's that? Well, it's it's roughly 20 times 8. So the answer is going to be 160-ish. And, um, you know, that's good. And even it's even 200-ish, but it's definitely not 2,000-ish. So yeah. knowing where to stick the decimal point is, is another crucial skill. That and times tables and basic addition can get you a long way. So we're often faced in real life with these little um, bits of uh, arithmetic and... There's, a, you know, particularly we mentioned earlier that kind of group occasion of people watching and you, you're presented with a bill and you want to share it out roughly, assuming it's not the case that somebody's had like a carrot and somebody else has had uh, a foot thick steak. But by and large, you think everybody's going to get the same amount. You know, there are little examples like that, like in, in, a, in a restaurant dividing, apart from just using your phone, but if you use your phone, you, you know. So where's the fun in that? Is there little tricks when it comes to, you know, something like dividing a restaurant bill? Very often you'll be divided by a smallish number, you know, four, five, six, depends on how many people you're hanging out with. But um, um, I, I always love it when there's five of us, because then there is a lovely trick there. Let's say it's, um, I don't know, it's added to 130 euros to, uh, to take that as a bill. Um, how do you divide that equally between five people? Well, um one thing you can do and is a good skill to have is mental short division. Five into one doesn't go, five into 13 goes two and so on. But another uh, little trick is instead sharing between five people, double the figure, that's 260, and divide by 10, 26. Because doubling and divide by 10 is the same as uh, dividing by five. Or you could do it the other way around. You can divide by 10 first and then double your answer. Um, so that's quite nifty. And when I do that in front of people, they think I'm some kind of genius. Um, it's great, too, <laughs> because really it is. I, I think, you know, if there's one uh, arithmetical skill, it is worth investing time in practicing. It's the ability to double and halve numbers because that will get you so far. I mean, dividing by and multiplying by 10 as well. That's really easy because that's a matter of lopping off a zero or shifting the decimal point. But Doubling and halving takes a bit of practice, but if you can double, then you see something needs to be multiplied by four, you double it, and then you double it again, you've, you've done it, or multiply by eight, double, double, and double again. So uh, multiplying by eight or dividing by eight, again, you'd halve, halve, and halve again. So, um, uh, you know, by the time you've, uh, you've learned to double and do that a few times and divide and multiply by 10, you've taken out. A majority of the the tricky times tables um so the rest of them you can just uh, learn your own little separate tricks for those and what's good about that is it kind of goes to this idea of get the majority of stuff roughly right and don't disproportionately worry about the minority of things and a lot of things in in life will um be a hell of a lot easier uh, if you kind of you know, learn tricks for the majority of times. Uh, one other uh, thing I liked is it, it does seem like a book for the idly wondering, you know, the person walking around looking at things. I saw a particularly nice one where, because you often, 
we often do that thing of looking at a tree, particularly on a stormy day, wondering, would that tree, would that tree reach me? And and trying to figure out how high the tree is. And of course, there's all sorts going on when you look, you're at a particular height. Your perception of how high the tree is depends on how far away you are and all that kind of thing. But you have some neat tricks for even just guessing the height of a tree with with what might be blowing around the place. Yes. Um, uh, just with a crisp packet is my favourite little nifty trick. You find a crisp packet or a, a sheet of A4 or an old envelope. Um, but making and, a virtue making a virtue out of litter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how do you use a crisp packet to measure the height of a tree? What you do, um, it's because we've not got the visual aids here, but I'll try and describe it. Um, first of all, fold the corner of the crisp packet over so that the what was the top of the packet now aligns with the side. You've, you've folded over to make a sort of slope. And what you've done uh, is make a 45 degree angle because you've you've halved the, the right angle at the corner. And, and, so and now and that, uh, that take, you don't need a square crisp packet for that. You no, know, a rectangle one, exactly. Yeah. You, you, there'll be obviously be a rectangle of crisp packet below this triangle you've just formed. Anyway, now so now you've got crisp packet with a folded over corner and this slope and now think of that as a sort of um uh an engineer's it's, it's almost is it a theodolite it's called but anyway it's it's a sight line so holding the crisp packet up to your eye and it helps if you've got someone with you, you can check that the the base of the crisp packet is horizontal oh yeah <laughs> um now, then just walk forwards and backwards until as you look up the slope of the crisp packet uh that line lines up with the top of the tree um mark that point uh where you're standing and then um it helps to know roughly how long your stride is but most of us uh, adults have a stride of about a meter and you can uh, you can test out what your stride is but anyway um stride to the base of the tree and count how many meters that was let's say it was 15 meters well the good thing is that you to the tree uh is the same as uh, your eye line at the tree up to the top of the tree because what we've created is a little isosceles triangle. The distance from you to the tree is the same as the height of the tree, ignoring your personal height for a second, uh, because they're 45 degree angles at both ends. So um, however far it is for you to the tree is 15 metres uh, and therefore the tree is 15 metres plus your height up to your eyes, which might be about two metres. So um, or probably a bit less for most of us. But anyway, that would suggest the tree is about 17 metres high. There are, of course, other methods you can use for measuring the height of a tree, but there's something rather uh, elegant and delightful and whimsical about using a crisp packet to do it. Uh, probably checking how have heavily populated the park is at the time as well, just to see, well, how does this look from a distance? But it, what, like, what, what, what's in that? There's such power in that though isn't there this um like you're sneaking in this trigonometry and well yeah what i would say is that you know most of the stuff that you that's going to be useful is stuff that you probably first encounter in primary school you know you may then re-encounter it many times in secondary school but it's stuff you weren't you 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 could have learned before you were 11 um you know, so the angles in a triangle, for example, that's, you know, you learn that at a very young age. So there's nothing very difficult about the maths we need in most everyday life situations. And it's incredibly powerful um, and just amazing that more people don't have 
those skills and use those skills. It seems to me that what's very crucial when it comes to mental arithmetic is question number two. Like, so you come up with a question, how high is that tree? And that, that next step, like overcoming the inertia of seeing it, let's, let's not immediately assume we, it's impossible to find out. We, we definitely don't know. But what is the next question to ask? And, and getting to that stage seems to be a very, for me, seems to be a very important uh, uh, step in the, in the process. Well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of what all real life problem solving is like. It's not the computation necessarily. It's knowing knowing what maths you need to do. Um, and in a way, that's where our education gets it all wrong, because the really interesting and important job in maths education is the examiners who take the real world and turn it into maths questions. Then we take, you know, maths tests and just, uh, you know, learn the rules and do all of this kind of thing. But the real skill really was the... Uh, was the examiner who said, okay, we've got, we need a probability question here based around buying sweets and da 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 da. Um, so, um, so yes, the, often it's the maths is not the hard part. It's knowing what maths you do need to do. And that comes with practice and from seeing other people doing it and just familiarity too. You know, once you've done the tree measurement once, next time you'll remember it hopefully and uh, it's easier. And so you start to recognize, ah, oh, yeah, I fixed this once before. I'll use that technique again. Uh, some of the areas you cover uh, involve questions that are, they seem like random questions, but maybe might be extremely po- important if you were, say, I don't know, you were you were a minister for finance and you were deciding to give everybody a tax credit for getting married for whatever reason, right? And uh, And you needed to know whether it was a good idea or not. It seems like if you had somebody in the room who was saying, well, to be honest, I don't know, is it worth doing that? Because it's going to cost you X, Y, and Z because uh, quick back at the end of a calculation, we'll say there's, you know, a million weddings a year or 600,000. But it was it was the process. Can you take us through like some of the questions you ask in, 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 a, in a question out of thin air, like how many weddings a year in the UK? And just to give an idea, of, so to help us, Get to that second stage. What's that next question? Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, th- things like that. I mean, the, the, the first thing you can do, the first step is say, look, uh, let's 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 put an upper and lower limit on this number before we do anything else. You know, if we take if we take the UK convenient number, 60 million people, um, how many weddings a year? Well, immediately wedding requires two people. And let's assume all weddings are between um, uh, people in, in the UK. There can't be any more than 30 million weddings. And of course, um, weddings, you know, no one under the age of 18 is going to be getting married, really. Uh, So you can start knocking things down, saying, well, look, the absolute upper limit before I even think about it is going to be, you know, 10 million. And then what's the lower limit? Uh, And come up with some basic thoughts on, well, you know, how many people are there in each particular age band? Um, 60 million people. Let's say there's one million for sheer convenience in each age from one up to 60 because the population is reasonably evenly spread um and most weddings are going to take place between 25 and 35 years old 25 and 40 15 million a quarter of the population uh, at most even eligible to get married in a year so all these things can start you know honing you in on coming up with 
an answer, but um, we'll but we'll come up with a uh, a figure based on various bits strands of evidence, a combination of some general knowledge about some key facts, like how many people there are, um, and how long people live for, and so on, and then combining that with some rough and ready arithmetical uh, steps and some assumptions too, like maybe only uh, one in two couples actually get married, so there will be you know a certain number of couples being formed but only a proportion of those getting married so that's one example but you know another example people talking about climate uh, that numbers being thrown about all the time and this is a really important one and one of the ideas out there is let's plant a trillion trees wow i mean that's an amazing project that lots of people are signing up for it's a good question is it possible to yeah. plant a trillion trees. What what does that even mean? I mean, all these illions sound much the same. Million, billion, trillion. Um, and you know, I, I like that question for saying, well, look, you can you can start small. What what do I know about woodland? What you know, a little forest I grew up near. Well, they had lots of trees, and let's say each tree is two meters apart and a hundred meters square. I can picture roughly what that looks like. That would be fifty trees by fifty trees. That's 2,500 trees. I'm doing this on top of my head. Two and a half thousand trees just in that 100 metres. And then you started scaling it up and scaling it up to, to realise how many a million trees is. It's not quite as big as you might think. And then expand that to say, well, OK, a billion is a thousand times that. We started to get, you know, a large portion of um, the south of Wales. People always like to use Wales as their example for area. <laughs> Wales. And they say, well, Wales, and Wales and swimming pools. Yeah, a tr- and a trillion is a thousand times that. And you think a thousand of those, okay, let's zoom out, look at the map. And you start saying, well, you know, if we take the Sahara Desert or other places that haven't got any trees at the moment, in theory, there is the space to do it. So, um, and indeed, there are that sort of, you know, the number of trees on the planet are in that sort of scale of of number. But the other thing that any policymaker is doing is one thing, yeah, there is the space. The other thing is who plants it? What yeah. is the manpower? How many trees can a person plant? So you realise these, you know, these are big, complicated things. But it does need someone at every stage of the project to be stepping back and saying, "Hang on a second, guys, let's just think: oh, Are we even in the right ballpark here? Is this even feasible? Are we going to be able to do this in the next ten years, or would it take a hundred years at the current rate?" Uh, and there's so many things in the news at the moment that that are like this to do with climate change. Uh, in the UK, there's a huge thing about getting rid of gas boilers. And, you know, uh, gas is so important here, but let's get rid of them by 2050 or 2030 or whatever. Great thing to say. But A, um, uh, how much is that going to cost? And B, perhaps more importantly, who's going to do it? Because every boiler needs a specialist to take it out, put it in. So back of envelope might well be saying, uh, even if, you know, a quarter of the population were trained up as boiler fitters. There wouldn't be enough people to to do this job in the first place. So these these are really critical back of envelope things that I hope are going on all the time at the moment. And you know what? I bet in many cases they're not going on at all. Yeah, a, a surprising lack of envelopes uh, to to scribble upon. And and like there's a great comfort in targets, particularly if they're far enough away. If you do, we're going to do a big number by a particular date 
And we do this all the time ourselves, our, our magical thinking. You know, you know, you have a job. Well, the first 5% of it has taken me a day, but I'm confident that I'm going to nail the other 95 on, on day two. Mental arithmetic, it really, it forces us to a reckoning, doesn't it? Not the exact number, but it's, it's basically us saying, hang on a second, uh, are, we, are we just fooling ourselves here? Um, yes, it really does. And I, I wonder whether... Um, a lot of people in government kind of um, are kind of relying on the fact that we 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 won't challenge them, that we don't have these skills because we've got a leader who loves to make promises uh, and then, you know, gaslight us into forgetting that they were ever made, you know, weeks later. But uh, what you need with someone like that is when they say we're going to recruit 20,000 police officers is to stop them at that point and say, OK, how many? Let's look at these numbers. Let's see if that all weighs up. And, and it's got to be instant because you know how politicians are. You know, if you don't nail them, then they've slipped away. They've gone onto another track at the first opportunity and you never get a chance to nail them down again. And then the rules have all changed next time you talk to them. So so the ability on the spot to fight back and say that number does not make sense is just could never have been more important than it is now. Another area where our uh, ability to process a number as it comes into us uh, is often, uh, I suppose, stunted by the context in which it's told, is we get told about the risk of doing something. We almost now, I think we do have to take it upon ourselves, a duty almost to kind of, to put a little bit of effort in, don't we? Saying, wait, the risk of such and such a happening is this but compared to what when confronted with say your risk so when confronted with a survey uh your risk is one in three are there tricks to interrogate uh what you've been presented with i mean the first the first thing you have to to say is well, where is that statistic come from that risk come from but also based on what because you know the chance if you catch covid of you developing symptoms i don't know what the figure is but maybe it's um you know one it may be what about one in two one in three i don't know what, what the thing is but of course that's going to vary depending on your age so if you're under the age of 15 it might be considerably lower uh, and if you're over 70 considerably higher uh, so uh according to whom and who's this relating to so you know the risk to the general public is different from the risk to me you know the chance of someone dying from a shark attack uh in a year might be one in a thousand but the chance of me dying from a shark attack i'd say is practically zero because you won't find me going anywhere near anywhere that there are sharks because i don't do that kind of thing so so you know what might be a risk for the general public is not a risk for me so Probabilities are not this one-size-fits-all thing. They depend on what you're doing, what your circumstances are, and everything else. And and I think it's really important to be able to pick apart all of those things and to compare them too and say, you know, uh, we we get scared by uh, the chance by, by the thought of um, a you know a nuclear power station getting built because there's a one in a million chance we could get affected by that. But we don't have any qualms about getting in a, a car and driving when there's a 
far higher chance we might end up having an accident. So we're not very rational about comparing risks. And by and large, for example, human beings tend to be prepared to take risks if we think we're in control, because we think we're, we therefore are at less risk. But the evidence is, you know, that that is not what actually determines your risk. But I suppose then you're into trying to uh, reckon with people's behaviour, <laughs> which is it, which in itself is a, a mental calculus that uh, it takes probably it takes too long to be doing uh, calculations at the same time. Estimating crowds in in an area and how even just telling at a glance how many people are here. Are there mm. tricks in that area? Well, yeah, I, I was kind of brought up on this, I have to say, because whenever I went to a football match with my dad or a concert or whatever, before it all started, he'd always say, how many people do you reckon there are in here today? So it was a little, you know, mind game to play. I'm sure he was also wanting to develop a skill in me for later life. Um, but you kind of get used to saying, well, OK, let's take that block. It's about 20 people across and it's about 50 down. That's about a thousand people. So after a while, you know, you, you get to have a sense of how many people, you know, what a thousand people looks like, you know, at a, a, a big football match, Manchester United playing. Well, that's what 70,000 people look like. So one stand is going to be 20,000 people. So those are all little tricks of the trade you can do. And then, you know, slightly more accurate methods that can be used that are used by you know the people who design events is to just take little samples and say well okay i can work out in those 10 by 10 square meters um there are you know 50 people let's now extrapolate because it looks like the density is much the same across the whole area and, and multiply that up but you know crowd estimation um is an inexact science uh but it's very important to a lot of people who can forget Donald Trump um, oh, attempting yeah. to estimate the size of his inaugural crowd and extrapolating it by a factor of 10. Um, so but all the evidence there, when you looked at the figures and, you know, used photos and everything was to say, you know, that was a much smaller crowd than Barack Obama. But his ego would not allow him to uh, to admit that that was the case. Um but um, and, and, and actually, when it comes to crowd estimation as well, uh, there's a lot of politics every time it happens. If it's a demonstration, the people demonstrating want the number to be as big as possible. And the people against the demonstration want it to be as small as possible. And often, you know, you'll hear estimates from the police. Um, I suspect police are generally on the size of the of the of the enforcers, the anti, <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, against the people who are demonstrating and therefore maybe police numbers will tend to be on the low side but no one ever seems to provide an objective yeah there were 50,000 people in that crowd it's always a much wider um, set of goalposts than that the uh, the quandary would be what if the police were protesting how much would the police estimate <laughs> of the protesters be yeah. in that case we've taken a few examples and I know it's hard to get across like tips and tricks in a kind of the the audio uh, medium uh, when I suppose people do like to do it on the back of an of an envelope but if if you could for people listening what would you say they should almost in their brain or their uh, approach 
make themselves more open to mental arithmetic? Is it like, is it just you're faced with a question? Is it almost just stop, don't run away and have and and just start asking questions? Yeah, I would. And actually, perhaps one of the safest ways is just on your own when the pressure's off. When you see uh, some numbers there, just practice adding them up. When you're doing some shopping, do a little guesstimate of how much you've actually spent, you know, how much is in your basket, then seeing what the real figure is, seeing how close you can get. So playing games with yourself is great because if if uh, you're a parent, you've got younger kids there, then this is a perfect opportunity for you to play number games with them. And while, you know, whilst doing it with them and they'll be still quite enthusiastic, you can be learning yourself. So I'm sure that improved my arithmetic skills a lot, just playing number games with with my children when they were younger and wanted to play those games um so so yeah practice and look for opportunities and and just having a go but but not kicking yourself for getting it wrong in the same way that people are kind of either are told or tell themselves oh maths or arithmetic is just not my thing do you think that more or less nearly everybody is has the capability to do the kind of the very basics that allow them then to move on to solving some of those problems. Uh, yes, I do. I think it's it's easy to uh, just dismiss and say I just can't do it. Uh, I think a tiny proportion of people listening to this might have a, a, a syndrome known as dyscalculia. It's very rare. Um, but you know, let me start with this. What's three plus four? And I hope everyone's saying, well, that's seven. That's easy. That's obvious. So I say, okay, well. What's three plus nine? If you just keep on adding, uh, th- th- there will come a point where it's difficult. But the point is, everyone finds some bits of arithmetic easy. It's just a question of establishing where is that point where it's difficult for you. And then say, right, today I'm going to practice a bit and get a bit further. So, you know, like fitness, no one would question that with a bit of, uh, you know, daily routine getting out there um, that we can all get fitter. And it's just the same with arithmetic you can get better. You may never be an Olympic champion, but you will be able to get better. So I I dismiss anyone who says, I just can't do it. Um, it's just a matter of knowing where your current limit is and then saying, well, you know what? I'm sure I can push beyond that. Rob Eastaway, uh, thank you very much for coming to The Function Room. Thank you for having me. That's all from The Function Room this week with me, Colm O'Regan. Follow me on Twitter at Colm O'Regan or the podcast at Function Room Pod. And if you like the podcast, please leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, like a five-star one. You can send the constructive criticism by email. See you next week. Bye-bye. Why are you adding that? Where, where, where is that? On the side of the milk, is I it? I want to see how it adds up to 100. Oh, because oh, it's supposed to be 100%, is it? Okay. So what are you starting with? 14 plus 25. And then what I've gotten so far is 65. From 14 plus 25? Or... No, um, from um, 14 plus um, 25 plus 20 plus 16 is 65. Is it? Yeah. Oh, what's 14 plus? 20 is...
14 plus 25, is it? No, yeah. Okay. It's 39, and then 20 plus 39 is, um, and 20 plus 39 is, um, 59. Yeah. And then 16. Oh, no, wait. Yeah, and then, um, Thank you.